You're listening to Business Lunch with Roland Frazier. This is your seat at the table. Welcome to Business Lunch. I'm Darren Clark, the producer of the show, and today we have the honor of hearing from the founder of Reebok, Joe Foster. Following the family heritage back in 1895, Joe's grandfather, Joseph W. Foster, pioneered the spiked running shoe and famously made shoes for the world's best athletes. In this conversation, Joe talks candidly about the need for passion and undivided attention when it comes to entrepreneurship and the toll it can take on your family and personal life. If you sometimes feel like people around you are holding you back, you'll be inspired by Joe's experience. Be sure to hit that follow button on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And here's Roland. Hey everybody, Roland Fraser here. Want to welcome you to this episode of Business Lunch with my very special guest, Joe Foster, who founded Reebok. And um, Joe, welcome to the show. Very happy to have you here today. It's a pleasure, Roland. Thank you for the invitation. It's very nice. Thank you. I had the uh, the opportunity to read your book and um, really, really enjoyed it. And I recommend, by the way, everybody, it's a little hard to find if you Google. So because there's so many shoemakers out there, but the title of the book is Shoemaker. So if you're Googling, do Shoemaker book Amazon or Shoemaker book Joe Foster, and you'll find it super easily. I know when I first started looking, it was uh, it was a little hard to find, but it's absolutely wonderful yeah, read. And a beautiful story. So uh, I recommend anybody that's listening should definitely get it and and check it out. Also, it's not currently available in an audiobook format in the United States. It is in the UK, but um, not not yet. Um, Joe, do you know if they're is, is, are they planning on getting that released here in the states? Well, it, it's some. It's probably uh, probably a month or so ago. But uh, I have had somebody who has received the audio version in the okay. states. Oh, interesting. So it's on Amazon. I, I wasn't I wasn't able to get it, but hopefully they'll they'll work that out. And uh, maybe it's just me making making a mistake. Yeah. That said, um, I I was really like right at the beginning. You come from I believe five generations of shoemaker. It does go way back. It does indeed. Yes. Uh, I guess it's in the DNA because yes, we go back to well, my grandfather really first came to the uh, forefront in 1895. So that's my grandfather. So we've got the three generations. And then his grandfather. Damn, that's right? He, that's where he got his idea from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which, is, which is pretty crazy. And that was really interesting too, that your, your uh, and, and was it your great, great grandfather then that invented the cleat for football, for, for soccer? No, no, no. My great, great grandfather or my father's grandfather was indeed a cobbler. He just used to repair street shoes, but ah. also, Apart from repairing street shoes, he did sports shoes as well. And really what he did in those days was cricket boots. Because cricket, okay. was, uh, cricket was there before soccer, believe it or not. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. He used to repair cricket boots. <clears throat> and cricket boots did have spikes in the bottom. And uh, I'm pretty sure that my grandfather said to his grandfather, why have you got spikes in the bottom of these shoes? And the obvious answer was to give them grip so they don't slip when they're batting, they're bowling, they're fielding, they don't yeah. grip. And I, I think my friend had a good idea then, well, he, he was a runner. He wasn't a very good runner, sort of midway down the field when, when he was out there running with his uh, low flat landing club. And, and so making himself a pair of shoes, he thought I could probably get one up here on the guys. And he did. He came a very unlikely second in the first <laughs> race that he had with his spikes on. And he, he wasn't a big lad. 
So we, we do suspect that maybe he was a bit bullied into saying, look, if you're going to wear those, you've got to make us some shoes as well. Ah, I love it. I love it. You mentioned uh, one thing you said was there's only room for one love when your heart is fully invested in your passion. I would love to hear your your thoughts behind that because it's uh, it's something that I think every business person wrestles with. Yeah, I, I, I think it is. And I think what you, uh, you've read the book. We had yeah. to change our name and we, we changed it to Reebok and Reebok had to go to the registrar. And we, we said to the guys, look, we found the name Reebok, small South African gazelle. We can't have Mercury, but we want this one. And we need this because apart from all these other names we've given you, we have to be in love with this. It has to be our passion. Mm -hmm. now, I, I don't think you can go eight hours a day with something, whatever it is. And with me, it's a company with people who want to work at something. You can't do that unless you're in love, unless you have a passion, unless you really, really because it doesn't give you back all that much at times. At times, it gives you a lot of pain. A lot yes. of heartache. So you've got to be in love. And when we say, well, one passion, yes. And, and I guess this cuts across whatever family life you do have. And, and I think what is important, part of what I learned from this, and uh, is that it's better having a partner who's really with you. Yes. Your partner should be really part of that as well. Because if there is anything, if you've got to make choices at times, sometimes you, when you're running a business, you cannot make a choice of should I or shouldn't I. It's got to be, it's got to be done for the business. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't put it to one side. And I don't suppose you can put a family uh, relationship to one side, but maybe that's easier than a company. <laughs> sometimes, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, sometimes. But you, you have to be in love. If you, not everybody is successful, but I think if you want to give yourself a really good chance of making it. You, you have to, your attention has to be undivided. You've got to give it that attention and that love. So I, I think it, it is, it can be a strain on, on a family. It can indeed. Really, at the very end, before I left, where I had, we had 10 years of absolutely fantastic times. My mm -hmm. wife could come, well, she could come with me anytime, but she didn't like to travel. But, right. You know, when we got to the... Uh, Pro celebrities and Hollywood, and you got all the celebs there. I, she loved that. <laughs> so that was probably the compensation after having years of me saying, "Oh, I won't be here next week. I'm going to America, or I'm going somewhere else. Um, I'm flying away." So yeah, I think that dedication is. It, you've got to have total devotion to a company, I believe, to to really make it work. And and just uh, the the family side of it. I think you, if you're lucky, and both of you can enjoy the pleasure of yeah. really is less good if you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. So you also mentioned something a few times that I thought was really interesting. You said that you grew up in a world of the remarkably average, quote unquote, and you said it, that it was better, like aspiring to be better was something that was kind of looked down on. And they always said, know your place, don't rock the boat, that kind of stuff. And, and you mentioned that a few times along with there's kind of a philosophy as you were coming up of uh, birth, work, death. And I'd love for you to, uh, to chat just a minute about that and how, because you were different from that. You had a, a different ethos and I'd love to kind of, you know, how, how was that? And, and, and is that still the case? Do you see as, as you, uh, as you hang out in, is it still in Bolton where you are? 
Bolton is very different these days than those days, but that's yeah. due to immigration and all things change as well. <clears throat> now, I think we've got to go back to the 1950s. I mean, we, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're talking some 70 years. We're talking a long time. Yeah. <clears throat> and this is, this is you know, World War II was finished. We're coming out of it. Everybody, you know, we all had one enemy, and that's getting through the enemy. So we were all together. People were very friendly. We, we didn't have automation. We didn't have things we wanted. We didn't have computers. You know, we didn't have mobile phones. In fact, you were very lucky if you had a telephone in your home. Right. So what, you, you lived with the community. And that, that community, somehow, you lived in that way. You, uh, I, as this happened, we did national service when I, when I was 18. And you, you developed a social sort of gathering people together up till that point. And then you went away for two years. Suddenly, what you knew was normal wasn't normal. You know, mother wasn't uh, making the bed, make, doing your washing, making your food. Um, so you, you know, all of a sudden you, you're looking after yourself. And the mind changes. The, what do we do? I, I think if we hadn't had national service, I probably would have been still amongst the, yes, you grow up, you, you do your job, you do whatever. And in those days, there were plenty of jobs, manual jobs. Things physically. Right? Now things have changed. You know, we're all automated. We're, everything's becoming technology. And the technology is taking over, taking you away from that life. So way back then, yes. And uh, for me, I, I probably was a little bit rebellious. Probably didn't particularly quite want to fit into that. I, I wanted to do something different. And, of course, you, you slide in what was different. So... You don't like the idea when when we came back from national service and we saw our company. It is like stepping back. All of a sudden, we're stepping back a generation. Right. You know, we, we're seeing a company still making shoes that were making in the 1930s. And but my brother, he'd been in Germany, and in Germany, he'd seen Adidas, Puma, he'd seen what they were doing. So when we came back, we just couldn't sort of sit there and take on the same role. But I said to father, look, you know, we need to do something. We need to modernize the company. But since he spent more time fighting his brother and mm-hmm. confusing with him, this wasn't good for the company. The company was going nowhere. And so every time I said, uh, look, we need to do something, he would just say, look, when Bill's gone and I'm gone, this company will be yours. <laughs> and I said, Dad, number one, we don't want you to go. That's not the intention. You know? right. We don't want you to go. But the problem is this company will have gone before you go and we need to change. Didn't work. Didn't work. Three years we tried, didn't work. And that's when we left the company. Is there any advice that you would give someone? Because you, you had a really unique experience in that you got to see your father and his brother trying to have, you know, well, literally having a family business. And then your grandmother, I think it was Marie. Mariah. She was called Mariah. 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 Okay. Your your grandmother kind of holding them together. Then she, when she's gone, they just kind of have at it uh, really, you know, very soon after her passing. But you grew up with that. And you also grew up with, you know, don't, don't use the Blake. Don't use that machine. That's the one that's expensive and finicky and, you know, kind of being held back a little bit, which goes back to the don't rock the boat, know your place and, and um, all that. Then you go on the service and you come back and you're working with your brother again, and you're living together in the fact and your new factory ultimately as you get started. Um, so you had a lot of family in there. 
And it sounds like throughout that time, even when you were working with your brother at Mercury pre-Reebok, that um, there were people saying, you know, well, why are you doing that? And don't do that. And so you had this, this driving force to move ahead, which I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast have. And you have a lot of people who are, I'm going to say holding you back and put it in air quotes, because I think that they have your best interest at heart. Ultimately, I don't think it's a malicious, I think it's just, you know, hey, let's be happy with what we've got kind of thing. But, um, but having faced all that through all there, would you say there's any particular advice that you would have for somebody and how to deal with that and, uh, and still stay motivated and move towards your dreams, but minimize the collateral damage in the family? <laughs> well, I, I, I can really sympathize what you're saying. I can really uh, feel that. I, I understand that. And it does come across in the book because, yes, uh, when, you, when you start to push against uh, something and say, well, this isn't right. You, know, you push. And there's some people who are just so happy to, no, 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 the status quo, you know, everything's okay. We're setting up our, okay, you've moved away from the family business, you've set up your own business. But yes, I, I did get that resistance from my wife. And I wouldn't say from my brother. He, it, ra- rather than him resist anything, he just didn't oppose anything. He was more, he, he loved the idea of working in the factory. He'd grown up, he spent four years down with the family business working in the factory, and he loved that. He, he didn't want to be bothered with marketing or sales or advertising or, or growth. He just liked to, to work in the factory. So he, he was the least resistant. But of course, the women, the wives, they were a bit more um, vociferous. They, they would say a few more things. And of course, they, and, and I, think, uh, I think my brother probably put up with a lot more than I, I understand from his side. So I, I always felt when the opportunity to go to America, look, I can go to America, it's this, 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 we've got this opportunity. It was, why do you want to do that? Why, why do you, well, look, that's the market. This is, we, we have to do something. We can't stay here. We'll just go nowhere. We, we need to move. Why do we need to move forward? Well, we've got a nice little business series. And, and I think I, I, I realized uh, very early on that you can't stand still. Your business has to progress. Right. You know, if, it pla- if it plateaus, it goes down. You, you have to have that drive. If there is no drive, that it is just a job. But you will end up, we would have ended up just like the family business, J.D. Foster's. And funny enough, my grandfather must have had that drive. Yes. Because he, he had a tremendous drive. Yep. He knew how to influence people. Way, way back there, the early 1900s, yeah, he would give his shoes to leading athletes. And, and that would influence other athletes because they would win. He used to advertise, amazing advertising. He used to, just small little things in, in newspapers, in sporting newspapers. And, and there was one that if you don't believe that uh, Foster's running shoes are the best shoes you've ever worn, will give you 100 pounds. In those days, that was a lot of money. It was also very cheeky to say that you'd do that, you know. <laughs> but that was a sort of um, money was. And, and he got so many athletes to wear his shoes. Uh, you'll have read it, Chariots of Fire, which was a great film in its day. It was yeah. about three, three Olympic athletes that all earned gold medals in the 20s, the British athletes. But Joe Foster, my grandfather, has actually made their shoes. So he yeah. made their shoes and they got those gold medals way, way in front of anybody else. He was influencing people. So I think he had that drive. And, and I think for me, 
that must have been the inheritance. They probably skipped a generation and came to me because I, I needed to push. And, and, and I could feel that resistance. And You, and I you see that a lot. You see the skipping of a generation a lot. I, I practiced law for several years and uh, had a lot of entrepreneurial clients. And it, it, it's funny. That's, that's, I don't know why, but it seems like that sometimes there is that, that the, maybe the, the f- generation that is innovative and creates the opportunity then kind of accidentally hamstrings the, their kids because their kids are in the shadow of that entrepreneur. And yeah. then um, it, and they're trying to carry on what that person did. So they don't really get a chance to innovate as much themselves. And then the next generation sees all the mistakes and all the places that it's being held back and says, let's do this, right? It's kind of interesting. Yeah, and it, it, it is interesting. <clears throat> and the only thing about that is that uh, we didn't know, Jeff and myself, we left the company and we started off with Reebok. But we must have been 10 years down the road with Reebok before we decided, let's look back in our history. Mm-hmm. Let's look, why did grandfather do this? And, and it's only when we started, with the time, we got people who could work on this, they look back and we found out so much more about our grandfather and the history Mm-hmm. than we knew at the time when we left. So it was intuition, intuitive that we had to move. And, uh, and we found all this out. And this is why I look back and I think, wow, grandfather, he, he was quite a genius in his way. You know, he either invented those first spikes or he certainly was a pioneer right at the beginning of spike footwear. And uh, you know, it takes some doing. And you're thinking back then, you know, I, I'm saying now we don't have computers. or we didn't have computers. We right. didn't have mobile phones. You know, and when I was traveling in the early days, I didn't have a credit card. I had to have a bunch of American Express uh, checks. Sort of thing, travelers checks. <laughs> and so what did, what did my grandfather have? Much less than that. They didn't mm-hmm. have a, a telephone at all. Uh, you know, so your communication was by letter. And we, we do have a letter that he wrote in the 1920s to an athlete who was probably this, he probably lived about 30 miles away. And grandfather used to get the athletes to join Bolton Harriers, so he had a big team, a good team. And when one left or didn't want to do something, they had to write a letter and say, you know, we need to talk. <laughs> but <laughs> Try to keep them on. Yeah, but how do you, you know, and this is only 20, 30 miles. Yeah. So, so he, he needed that. No, he must have had that enthusiasm, which, you know, is like, he must have been a pushing man. You know, I, I need to do this. So you, you, uh, I, uh, the cheeky ad you said that he had. Um, I know that you. One of your ads ended up um, something about uh, Reebok is putting our balls on the line uh, with the tennis going into the tennis market, which turned out to be really, really a good thing. Was that modeled based on that old? Like, did that come about as from thinking about that old ad for the guarantee of a hundred pounds that your granddad did? Well, by the time that ad came out, I mean, many of the stories I've been talking to people, many of the stories people have picked up. So it may well be they picked up on that, but that was Paul Feynman. Paul Feynman decided that we'll put our, our balls on the line. Okay. <laughs> and he, and he, came, he, he came to me and he said, Joe, he said, uh, I don't know if you're right doing this. He said, but I bought two cases of tennis balls. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Uh, two cases. And I said, well, don't worry, Paul. I'm pretty sure that you'll, you'll be okay. And in fact, it was. I think, I think they actually gave away half a case of tennis ball. That's all. That that, that's probably just people trying to see if they actually could get tennis balls. That's funny. <laughs> so your granddad and you did an, a really wonderful job of using influencers. And way before the current 
craze of influencers and all of these micro audiences that social media has created that exist now. And, and I'd love to, uh, to just hear your thoughts on, because, um, there is an influencer economy now and a maker economy, they call it. What do you see similar now as to back then? And, um, if you were launching now, if you were launching Reebok and you, you, um, had some of the ideas that you had back then, how would you use influencers in the current market? Well, we talk about influencers and I talk about my grandfather using influencers. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, the sports business, you know, we, we've had depressions, recessions in, in throughout my life. There have been maybe half a dozen times when things have happened either caused by bankers, something has caused a recession. But the sports industry has never gotten that. In fact, this is the worst recession we've had for the sports industry, COVID. COVID has been the worst thing for the sports industry ever. Otherwise, the sports industry has been growing, 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 growing. So it's never had to worry about, well, what's caused the problem? So we, we talk now about influencers. And when Jeff and I decided to leave, we, we decided that we would go into the athletic shoe business because that we could move into. The soccer business, Adidas were already using influencers. They were paying people. They were putting money in shoes, and so they were using one. And uh, we looked at it and said, what can we do that's different? And, you know, it's not. There's nothing different. Mm -hmm. Influence is the way. I know a good friend of mine who had a rather sizable sports shoe business, and um, he was saying, look, what we're going to do, we're going to sell VFM, value for money. Mm -hmm. value for money. They're going to sell value for money. And I said, Shaq, said, Who's going to pick up on that? You know, who's going to, what does that mean, value for money? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we're going to get good prices, perfect product and whatever. It failed. It failed because people can't relate to VFM, value for money. They expect value for money as something that, but then again, they don't even look at that. When they it's see just not a differentiator, right? Because like you said, they expect that to be everywhere. That's right. So, yeah. so when they see athletes wearing a certain product, Everybody wants to use that product. If this man can score goals wearing this, or he can do whatever he can do, I, I want a pair of that. And, and of course, ever since, I, mean, I can say probably in the early 60s, sport has been influencing street. In my grandfather's day, sport was, it was influencing sport, other sportsmen. Mm -hmm. Then in the 50s and 60s, it started to come onto street. We used to see youngsters wearing a replica shirt a replica shirt with Adidas down or whatever. So this is the influence. And that influence has grown and grown and grown. And now it's fashion. Sport and fashion, you can't take them apart. And yeah. so it's the sport, the fashion, the influence. And it's done. Whatever the influence, whatever it's gone to, we see influencers now who are not even in sport. They're in music. They're in whatever it is. But we're the product. We have opportunities to see the product now. We have television. We have all these different ways of seeing it. And it hasn't changed, except in, its, in the way the influencers work, where we so, pick them from, how they are there. So when you picked, um, when you were picking people who were influencers to give shoes to, um, I know that was one of the strategies early on, particularly in aerobics when Angel Martinez was going around and kind of under the, under, uh, the radar trying to see if there was a market for a women's aerobic shoe. And then ultimately you got Denise Austin, and um, who uh, I think was a paid endorser, and then Jane Fonda, yes. who was not paid, or at least not initially. Um, 
how would you approach those now? Because you, you you were like even back in the days with the Wanderers, um, all the way up into uh, major franchises. How do you get your foot in that door for somebody that's trying to figure that out? Well, I, I, I guess the bottom line is money. Mm-hmm. These days, in particular, um, before the money came about, given a product, you know, people were so happy to receive. I, I was amazed. I was amazed at how many personalities would be just well, delighted to be given a pair of shoes. Absolutely delighted. Yeah, well, you know, this is wonderful. They would, in those days, like it wasn't money. It was to be given something as against having to go and buy it. Yeah, just the gift. I think, yeah. I think for me in the early days, that, that was it. Oh, yeah, but they, they'd love to have something given. They, they almost felt valued. You know, they felt valued because you, you wanted to give them something. And, and that has grown now to be you know, the, the heart of a business now is how you can focus on how much money you can put into something. And then when you put your money into it, you've got to make sure that people see it. So then, then you've got to create the advertising to say, well, look, so-and-so is wearing my shoe. You don't say that, but you, your advertising says it. <clears throat> and uh, I remember one of the days we, uh, we were – running was really becoming big. And uh, we used to have uh, marathons all through Europe. So there'd be the Brussels Marathon, the Munich Marathon, London Marathon. And, and it struck me that what we needed is people to see Reebok. And uh, so uh, – I set up Reebok Racing Club, and Reebok Racing Club, <clears throat> because whilst everybody belonged to some sort of club or other, the race when they were doing marathons, they were they were not representing the club; they were individuals. So mm-hmm. we and uh, we used to sell the racing club shirt and vest, nice, nice blue and grey. It was looked nice with Reebok Racing Club across, and uh, I used to give them to our leading athletes, and we used to say in these uh, in these marathons. We knew that maybe there's half a dozen, maybe a dozen potential winners of these marathons. They mm. were getting expensive. They were becoming. But we said to our athletes, right, you're good enough to be leading this race for at least half a race. Get up to the front. Here's the kit. Get to the front. And the television's always on the front. That's the great. Rebound Racing Club, Reba, and we used to have half a dozen there. Okay, by three quarters of the race, they're gone, but we had three quarters. <laughs> we, we had an hour and a half of Reebok in front of That's the television. Brilliant. I love that. What a great strategy. Yeah. So, I mean, those are examples of, of how do you get people to see your brand? And so, um, did you ever make a – I know you're a badminton enthusiast. Are you still playing at all? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Okay. Having, having, having a hip and a knee, a new hip and a new knee, and uh, shoulders are a bit uh, not quite working. We don't. It doesn't work the same now. <laughs> Did you ever make or think of making a badminton shoe? Well, surprisingly enough, the uh, really badminton shoes in those days, and I think they still are. They're made by vulcanization. The way we constructed our shoes in the early days was to have a stick-on process, where you you do the upper, you you. Will, you rough it up to get some adhesive in there. You put adhesive on the sole, and then you put. But badminton, to a lesser extent, tennis, mainly badminton. There's a lot of drag, so that when you're going side to side, you're going backwards and forwards, and you, your your foot is dragging. So you, you used to drag the, the sole off. It would just drag the sole off. And if it was um, vulcanized, just like a plimsoll or whatever, then that vulcanizing just made it welded it as one piece. So that was great for. Uh, for badminton, and uh, yes, I, I used to use ASICs 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they produced a vulcanized shoe. I, th I think actually Reebok have produced a vulcanized shoe, but I'm, I'm not too well aware of that. Man. <laughs> yes. and that came out of Tiger, is that correct? That's right. Well, I mean, I guess the company is on Itsuka. On Itsuka, yes. they, they, they had their brand name as Tiger. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then they, they moved to ASICS. But on Itsuka is the brand, yes. That was Phil Knight's first. Uh, I remember, he, yeah. That's pretty cool. He, he brought the Tiger into the country, yes. <laughs> you mentioned that, um, that when you needed staff and couldn't afford it, you ran a classified advert in the Bury Times newspaper and got an apprentice. Is an apprentice a paid position over there? Yes. Yes, okay. it's a paid position, but it's, it's quite relatively low pay because you, they're coming in to learn the business. So I think the apprentice uh, system, it did work for a number of years. But then, of course, trade unions sort of said, no, this is just cheap labor. <laughs> we, have, we have interns over here now, uh, and they yeah. can be paid or unpaid. Do they, do they use those? Uh, in the UK still? Yes, it's the same system now. The system okay. is, has grown where you now bring interns into the company. And if they prove good, then fine, you take them on and become a, a really paid employee. But <laughs> yes, yeah, interns are now the, the latest. I love it. And then um, you mentioned like, a, a kind of a recurring theme through every business that I've encountered is cash flow. And you said that, uh, you know, relatively early on, you realized that you needed to get involved with the bank and you had this guy, Stoppard, who you guys called Stop Heart, which I love. Um, yeah. what, um, how, how would you say now, you can look back over having lots of experience across a lot of different ways to get funding now. If you were looking to advise someone who was kind of up and coming and is having these cash flow challenges now, what would you suggest that they do? Should they go get a traditional bank relationship? Should they do something else? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think whatever business you're running, you do need you do need a bank relationship, mm -hmm. and you can use that for as much as possible. But the bank the bank has uh, you know they have limitations, and and the bank manager these days can't really make the decisions he made in my time. In my time, he made a decision. He he almost became part of your business. He didn't have to go higher and higher. Right now, it's a simple job that he doesn't make the decisions. He's there just to administer the decisions. So you've got to go right to the top, which is not many people can even get there. Uh, decisions are made so that the bank manager doesn't have to right. make a decision. And uh, but but he's there because you you need a, a turnover of cash. You need things coming in, so you need that. But I mean, right now there's uh, all sorts of things. If you've got a nice influential company, you're doing something different, you're excited, and you've got to be excited. Even when you see your bank manager, you've got to tell them how good you're doing. This is really fantastic. Look, I've got this idea. <clears throat> and you've got to lay it out. It's, it's got to be there. So now crowdfunding, yes. You know? And there are a lot of people. There are a lot of ways out there now. There, there is a lot of money out there. Yeah. And, and, and you guys out. used uh, friends and family too. You had uh, Gene's uncle, I think, right, that supplied a, an initial loan early on. Yeah, that, that was early on. I. I don't. I don't think these days that friends and family are probably the way you would do it now. I, I think. I think now you would. You would do crowdfunding. There are so many different ways, and you can go and add, people can get you money. That's for you. May have to give part of your company, and, right? And and, and, I, and I think that eventually it's got to be your uh, part of your plan. You know, initially you, you you're making you're making Reebok Reebok running shoes we're doing this this is our company it's great but Reebok is growing we're, we're making it grow it's doing better and better but if it's going to go from this to this we, we need 
bigger. We need something. Um, right. um, we got Stephen Rubin. Stephen Rubin, of course, he, he is a, he's a British company and he, they make lots of money. He's got lots of different companies. And his main company at that time for us was ASCO. That was Associated Shoe. And they were, they were actually in the Far East. They were sourcing products in the Far East. So they knew where to go, what to do. And they used to bring the product around to uh, to the UK. And he saw Paul Feynman as a way of expanding ASCO. Yeah. <laughs> because, look, Paul, you sent some of your guys into these big uh, people, you know, whatever, and uh, you know, we'll do them a shoe. And Paul refused to do that. He said, no, yeah, no. I, I love that. That, that. I thought that was really smart. I also <laughs> thought it was smart that you, um, for a while, while you were representing Reebok, you also took on two other lines. One was, I think, a dart flight and, and, and another, just so you could earn yes. money, but also get into the stores and walk around and see. And I see that again and again, too, is that that really getting out in the field and getting to know the market and the competition, like you saw that a lot of stores in, uh, I think it was in London, were owned by, or maybe it was throughout the UK, were owned by former footballers that really focused almost exclusively on football. And you're like, we're not in that sport, but I'm out there in the stores seeing that that's all they really care about. So we should think about, you know, looking at that. Is 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 that something you would re recommend people do is really kind of get themselves out into the field at a very deep level, closer to the, to the customer, which in this case, wasn't necessarily the shoe buyer. It was the buyer of shoes to sell to the shoe buyer, right? Right, right. I think it's absolutely important. It, it's probably one of the most important things is to, is to really know your business, apart from the product. The one thing, I wasn't a good salesman. You know, I, I'm not a good salesman. I, you know, okay, I could sell myself a bit, but I'm not a good salesman. You know, a lot of my friends were superb salesmen. They, they could go there and they could sell the product. But uh, I, I needed to go into the sports stores. They were the ones that should be selling our products, should be, should be taking our products in and stocking it. And so I, I did take on a couple of other uh, uh, items, which were quite interesting. And it, I, I learned an awful lot from that. It got, in, in certain places, it actually got me through the door <laughs> to have these other products. And, uh, but I would bring out Reebok, and they'd look at me and say, Reebok, who's Reebok? So, well, I could tell them what Reebok was. I could go through chapter and verse and tell them everything about my product. Right? And then he'd look at me quite a lot and say, look, I've got Adidas. I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? Wow, very important question. Why do I need Reebok? I realized he didn't need Reebok. Right. I needed to make him need Reebok. He didn't need it. I needed him. And it was, it was then that I realized, me going around now selling the shoes, I've learned enough. <laughs> I've learned enough that this is not how I'm going to expand the business. And expanding the business to better. My, my customers were athletes. We used yeah. to go to we used to go to the events and we'd have a cross country or a running event and we would open the car doors and we would sell out to the, the car people would buy and, and these were my customers and uh, so we had in in the uh, in the UK we had the three A's the Amateur Athletic Association they produced a book a handbook in that handbook were over two hundred maybe three hundred names of the secretaries and their address oh nice. So, I could get to every club. So I wrote to every club. I offered them 15%. They could either keep the 15% or use it for club funds, do whatever. And if somebody mm -hmm. in the club would like to be an agent, he could be our agent and he would get 15%. I got 
150, maybe 175 agents, really agents. And in fact, I, I think about 20 or 30 of those agents eventually became retail shops. They eventually right. set up a retail operation. But that, that, just, that just gave us our name. All of a sudden, we, we, were, we were selling more running shoes than anybody else. And we were winning races. And the same thing, once you start winning races, we were giving the shoes to the right people. Right. And so that, 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 not that part of the business. But of course, compared to something like football, soccer, small business. Adidas had got it by then. We needed right. something else. That's when America came into view. I needed America. In every university, every college, there's coach. And coach was God. You could get a scholarship, and that meant we could get our product in if we could get to the coaches. Right. And, and it was kind of interesting. So you, you spotted and, and really capitalized on the trend of running and then uh, aerobics. And then um, tennis, when you decided to move into tennis, because I know you got 20% of the market in just two years, which is pretty amazing. But and and that I guess uh, tennis was an already pretty well existing market and had a dominant player. But you had innovated the leather, and that was the. Would you say that was the main thing that allowed you to get in there? Was that innovation in the the non break in period for the shoes, or or because because that's pretty impressive to go into you know something that's been going for so long and then capture so much of the market so quickly. Well, of course, that was a storyline that gave us the. Actually, that, that opened the door. This yeah. is why we're here. We, we are, for Reebok, Reebok started this aerobic scene. They needed a very soft leather. They started with, uh, with glove leather. It didn't work. But we overcame that. We then got a nice soft leather. Now, wouldn't this work for tennis? Of course it would. Yeah, all these people are wearing shoes, and they're in agony. You know, for six months, it's difficult. You're getting blisters, you're getting problems, and then the <laughs> shoe's worn in. Yeah. And nearly worn out at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so this soft leather was, yes, you know, it's a, it's a bit like grandfather saying, if you don't think that Foster's are the, the best running shoes you've ever had, this was the same thing, the most comfortable tennis shoes you've ever had. Okay. And in, in fact, they were the most comfortable tennis shoes anybody ever had. But then on top of that, what you have to do then is to decide you need players. So it's back, it's back to putting these shoes onto players. And once you've got the shoes on players as well and the advertising rolling, then and, and it's like the, uh, the ad with the tennis balls. They're the most comfortable shoes you've ever had. Yeah, they're one or two things that, uh, that work in, in that way. And, but you've got to spend the money. You know, you've, you've got to focus on that market and show that you are a player. Then, of course, and one of the best things that we did was also it, it almost reminds me of the Reebok Running Club. Is we had a guy called um, Twan Twan Lee. Uh -huh. He was a designer, and he designed this tennis shirt with stripes across the top, colour stripe, and two of those stripes went right up and round the back. And so when you're looking at the back, and and they we took on Flack and Sagusel. I don't know if you remember Flack and Sagusel. Mm -hmm. They really they really became the top of the doubles game. Okay. And, uh, what used to happen is that athletes, tennis players, would all be signed up to either Nike, Adidas, maybe Reebok as well. And we got, but we also had a guy who said, look, not all these players are signed up. Not all these players you know, have got Adidas. And so why don't you, for a small amount of money, supply them all? 
Right. Anybody who's not signed up, just give them all the kit. Brilliant. And we did. And I remember Wimbledon at one time that you couldn't move without seeing this Reebok shirt. <laughs> and, and that was incredible. And, and I think it's, it's finding opportunities like that, that, you know, that, that just give you that edge that, again, that take you forward. Um, so so that, that, was, that was a great time for, for getting into tennis. And we got well into tennis. It was good. To, and uh, I think we got to the French, uh, I think it was, it was French, it was French Open that we, we, both men and women, we got both men and women on one year. So Chang, that was it, Changi. Yeah. So, yeah, tennis was a good place for us to be into. So, so throughout the, the book and, and it seems the, the, the Reebok career, you did a really great job of building these small independent sellers uh, by reaching out to agents and clubs and all of those sorts of things. And then when you cut the deal with, I think it was, was it Lawrence was the company that you cut that first deal with for distribution? <laughs> yes. Yeah, Lawrence, yes. And, that, and you had and you had to terminate all of those individual people. I see the benefits of 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 both. If you were doing that today, now obviously Lawrence, you had challenges with because you know somebody died and the son-in-law or whoever took over and didn't you know didn't run the business well. But assuming that you had a really good a really good distributor and you had that opportunity again, would you go distributor or would you? keep your individual people, uh, how, how, would you, how would you play that? Well, I, I think it was part of the process. I think we, we knew that to really get volume and to really be a company, that our, our individual agents, we, we would have had to move over to one side anyway. We would okay. have had to move them into some, either a Reebok retail, something that, I mean, right now, right now we, we're talking about sales and everything's online now. So, yep. you know, so what we did then, now, it's it's natural. This is this is what's happening now. You don't have to worry about it. In in those days, the retailer would come and say, "You're selling direct to an athlete." You know, my job is to stock your shoes and to sell them. And I say, "Yeah, it is your job to stock them, but you're not stocking them." So that's why we're selling. And they say, "Well, well, look, if you give up, we'll we'll stock your shoes now. If you give up selling," and and I'd say, "Well, I'm sorry, we're not giving up selling." And, and we didn't, and the retail still came. When we went okay. to have a distributor, then it was different because that distributor, they, they distributed soccer shoes and everything. So they, they were dealing with, with retail trade. And so that was their business. That's when I, I, I knew that if I, if I got somebody there, I could then look to America. Mm -hmm. I, could, I could look at these other ideas. It gave me the opportunity rather than running around doing the small business all the time, it gave me the time. It gave me that time to look and to look. So, at if, the you're, so if you're advising, let's say you're mentoring somebody that's an up and comer in, in any business and they've got this little network that they build and they get this opportunity and the distributor says, hey, you got to let all those folks go. Do you think that's probably a good call to take that because you have to do that to make that move or, or, or not? Well, I, I think, you know, we've moved. We're, we're no longer in, in the mid-20th century. We're, right. we're, now, we're now a quarter of our way through the 21st century. Right. Now we have this. We have, we have computers. You know, we have social media. We have you know, online selling. Um, if somebody wants to just come and say, okay, you know, you, you want to go global, can I help? And I would say, okay, 
if you want to buy this part of the business or if you want to work this, we'll work out how you can make your percentage out of it. And, you know, we'd work out some sort of deal. But you wouldn't stop doing what we were doing because that now is okay. what's happening. People, people want more direct contact with right. the with the manufacturer, they want to feel part of it now. Uh, you know, in going back 50 years, you know, people were happy to understand Adidas was a name, Reebok was a name, you know, and Nike became a name, and they were happy for that. But now people want to belong to the company. They they, they feel more associated, and it's this: it's bringing us closer. You're in California. I'm in France. We're six yeah. hours different in time, and yeah. we're probably. 5,000, 6,000 miles away. And, and yet, it's as though you were sitting next to me on this table. Yeah. We have a chat. The only yeah. thing that's missing is the wine. <laughs> well, we're, you know, we're probably 10 minutes away from that. And All right, <laughs> I like that. We will get the wine, yes. But, you know, we, 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 we can chat quite easily these days because it, is, it has become a friendly way of uh, contacting people. Yeah, yeah. I know we go back maybe 30 years when we first started to do a few sort of face-to-face, -face, okay, you know, but we'll, we'll have a, a meeting with somebody and we'll do it. But it was always embarrassing. It never really seemed to happen. Yeah. And, I remember the early, I remember the early <laughs> web conference things that were so yeah. bad. But, but that was it. They were called conferences. Yeah. These are discussions. These are chats. Yeah. We're just having a chat. They were, exactly. they were, you try to put half a dozen people around one table and somewhere else there'll be half a dozen people. And it just didn't work. You have to be one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that that came in gradually and eventually now with podcasting. It's one-on-one. Yeah. -on -one. Okay, you yeah. can have somebody come in. We can have half a dozen people and people can ask. But really, we're doing one-on-one -on -one now. And yeah. it's much more comfortable. It, it is. This is. This is good. So... Culturally, one of the things that I saw again and again that, that one of the first times you observed it was in New York, I think, or Chicago, where you said people had cigarettes and they were these long 100 millimeter cigarettes and yes. they would smoke a little tiny bit of it and then let it go. And it was funny because you're like, I'm smoking the whole thing. And then by the end of it, you're like, but one of the things that you mentioned a few times, and I think you said that it, you really felt it helped you with aerobics when you guys first launched the glove leather shoe and they would tear that you were you were thinking if it was in um, Europe, people yes. would not, people would be like, this is horrible and they'd never buy again. But in America, there's more of a kind of a throwaway culture and they were like, okay, that's cool. You know, or it's more forgiving generally just, you know, hey, they tore, I'm gonna buy a new pair because I like them, it's totally okay. We like the wrinkles, it doesn't have to be perfect. Is that still the case or like over the years, did you find that one or other of those cultures moved or are they still kind of similar? What are your thoughts on that? It's still the same. It's still the same. Okay. I think that um, what, what I certainly learned is that the American psychology, the American way of looking at life is okay. If we like it, we like it. You know, we're not, we're not going to become picky. Yeah. Where a lot of places around, around the world are very picky. If it's not, if it doesn't work, or they, they like to find problems. Mm -hmm. Whereas I, I, I find in America, they just like to find answers. You know, it was like, you know, so, so it falls apart. So what? Yeah. And the girls that used to buy, well, luckily we're down in Los Angeles. We're probably more disposable income down in Los Angeles and down in yeah. California than maybe the Midwest or the middle parts of America. But it's like, where are the influences? You're either in the Northeast or you're in the Southwest. Those are the big, big, big areas of, um, let's say, uh, not only people, but also attitudes in, yeah. in America. 
And certainly it's a much more relaxed down in the Southwest. California, yeah. it's warm. You know, we enjoy it. It's good. And, and the girls just love those shoes. And the mentality was, so, so they, they, they fell apart in four or six, uh, uh, you know, we'll send them back and we've got a new pair, that's okay. Or we'll just go and buy a new pair. They had disposable income and they also had this something new, this, this feel. And, and then they wanted this, you know, they knew of Adidas, they knew, they knew of Nike, mm-hmm. male, sweaty. Yeah. Ah, Reebok was young, something yeah. different. And yeah. just for them. So the, the women wanted it. They, they didn't want to throw it away. They didn't want to say, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, we don't like the idea. And Adidas and Nike, we both stood up. They didn't even look at aerobics. It's, it's going to be a fad. It'll be over with in a very short time. So they just stood back. And, and then this nice soft leather came out. So, yeah, and I think it still happens today. It, so if you were launching then, ideally, if you could launch anywhere, you know, with uh, we have in software this this concept of MVP, minimum minimum viable product. The you know it's horrible, it's going to be awful. But what they've learned in software is people early adopters don't care. They're like, we're, we'll put up with that because we like getting to be part of helping shape it. And then you kind of gradually get it, you iterate into getting it right. Would you say if you were starting now? maybe U.S. market would be a good place, both because you said disposable income in the book and this this culture of acceptance of, hey, we get it. It's not yet right, but we want it now. And then you get it right before you go into these other territories. Is that kind of how you would play it these days? That's how I would still play it, yes. I would, yeah. I would do that because I still think that that energy, that difference, that, uh, that freewheeling way of life, more, you know, like we're not restricted by whatever. Um, I think certainly in Europe, People have been brought up to the restrictions. You know, you, you do it this way and you, you don't. But I mean, right now, we'll, we'll just take for an example the vaccine program. The vaccine program in Europe is totally shot at. Mm-hmm. They can't do it because they can't get together. You know, nobody can say, okay, let's just do it. Right. Fortunately, in the UK, They've learned an awful lot. And the UK said, we're going to do it. The UK did it. And this seems to put somewhat the European nose out of joint in some way. And so they're, they're not seeming to get it together. Like, you know, Europe is, is a lot of independent nations. And I think these individual nations, is when I was trying to, you know, do we, do we go to Europe as a big market? Or do we go to America? Well, in America, they speak the same language. That helps. Yeah. In Europe, not only was it language, but also culture. Mm-hmm. Cultural differences between Latin Europe and, and sort of the, the Northern Europe. So mm-hmm. all those things. And I mean, in my opinion, um, the, the UK should still be in the EU, should still be part. But the, yeah. EU, but the EU should not be the political uh, organization it is. We should all be traveling together, working together, living together, enjoying that, and not think of the politics. Mm-hmm. It's the politics. So people are trying to do things and make people change. And, you know, you shouldn't. Over time, we will all live together. We'll all become coffee-colored, maybe. I don't know. But the thing is, we living together, allow that. So yes. Many restrictions in. And so we have that problem now. Uh, in, in Europe, they, they have this problem with, well, we can't use that vaccine for this, we can't use this, and oh, we've not got some, you have. And I, I think they're sitting on about four and a half million vaccinations that they've not used yet because 
you can't get the organization together. They, they prove how bad they are as a group becoming organized. And this is, this is I think, it's, it's going to make them think quite a lot. I, I think the idea of the EU is good, but I think it, this should take 100 years before they even think of the politics. Yeah. yeah. Let's live together. Let's enjoy life together. Certain things, yes, you know, security and things like that you need to work with. But when we talk about America, um, the next one is Japan. Yeah. Because Japan does look to America and takes it. And, and I think they are also a little more easier at accepting things now than, than they ever were. And so, you know, for me, it was once we get into America, this just flows out. Yeah. And if it works in America, it'll work everywhere. Yeah, you need yeah. a little bit of tweaking here and tweaking there. But yes, if I was setting up the place and, and, and I would look at California, I think you're sat rising in the area. And I think social media now is really coming, blowing up in, in California. Okay, mm -hmm. we talk to people in the Northeast, we talk to people around America. But really what we have found is that more people down in, in the Southwest want to talk, want to say, this is a new medium. Let's, where are we going to take this? Yep. Right. COVID has so, brought all problems, but so many advantages. So if, you're, if you have a brand in America, so you don't have to come into this market because you're already here, um, when do you think is the right time to go international? Because I know you develop pretty much all of the... Um, certainly the early to mid life of Reebok international relationships. You went out, found the distributors, went, set the whole thing up, had a separate office in Bolton for, you know, for dealing with them and everything. When's the right time? How do you know? I mean, I think the thing is that you, you don't really need to worry about it because okay. the rest of the world comes to America. Okay. The NSGA show we used to go to in Chicago. Yep. When, when I used to fly in, I'd be on one of the planes that would be coming in, and 90% of the people on that plane from me were from Europe or mm -hmm. from even the UK. So everybody came to the NSGA show. Everybody wanted to see what was going on in America. And even if you were German or whatever, you'd bring your product there as well. It was the biggest, the biggest international sporting goods fair. And, and, and I think that's what happens to, well, probably other products as well. If it's doing well in America, it will do well. Yeah, you say I went around, I did, I put on about 30 other countries, but mine wasn't the task of having to knock on doors and do you, do you want to sell Reebok? Look, I've got this. No, they were knocking on my door because we'd done what we did in America. They were knocking on my door. Can we sell Reebok? And it was just a matter of choosing the best. So the speed at which we managed to get globally was controlled by two things. One is the amount of time I could spend being able to go around and talk and discuss and, and work it out with them. <clears throat> the other one was how much product we could make. Right. <laughs> because demand on product would depend as to whether we could supply those markets. And that became my biggest problem towards before I, I retired is, yeah, I'm sorry, the demand is such we can't meet your, uh, <laughs> we can't meet your numbers for right. another two weeks or three weeks. Right. So, I think if anybody really makes it well in America, they won't need to worry about the rest of the world. Okay. The rest of the world will come to the doorstep. Okay. 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 Not everybody right. is there. But I'm sure that uh, Elon Musk is doing that now. I'm sure that his cars now are being, people are coming saying, can we be your distributor? Right, for sure. Yeah. 
Okay, just a couple more questions, and then I'll let you go to wine time. Um, <laughs> one is, so ultimately, um, I know you sold, and then um, Adidas purchased, I believe, uh, Reebok for $3.5 billion. And now I see in the filings for Adidas in uh, last year, they're saying that they're writing down the value to a billion. What? But but I know that there were throughout the 2000s there were exclusive 10-year contracts with NBA, NFL, you know, NHL, all of these sports leagues. What what do you think happened to the value of Reebok? Was it that Adidas? basically said, we just want to get that competitor off the market and we're going to go into those channels and ultimately that's it or, um, or some other thing. What, what do you think, like what, what happened and what would you do if you were in there right now trying to turn things around and bring it back to where it was? Well, I mean, first of all, we, we got to say, why did Adidas buy Reebok? Yep. They, I, th I think the answer was quite clear. They wanted to advance Adidas on the USA market. And yes. they saw Reebok had been very successful and got all these things in place. So if we buy Reebok, we can probably transfer some of those assets. Right. And I mean, if you'd paid $3.5 billion, you'd do that. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, what for sure. do. I'm sorry, I paid the money. I'm entitled to do it. Um, so that's what they did. And let's face it, it did well for Adidas. Adidas have, uh, have grown tremendously. I think it's about a $20 billion company now, while they're approaching, if not even more. Uh, whereas it... Reebok, of course. I mean, Reebok, you know, I'm not saying they, they purposely did anything bad for Reebok. It's just sure. that they did what they did for Adidas and grew Adidas. <clears throat> and so, you know, I, there's been sort of this uh, story which is between Adidas saying, well, you know, we're, we're trying to improve Reebok. But really, you know, they, they, they're really walking on the same pavement. You know, it's, it's the same ground. They're trying to move Reebok into different ground. Uh, they they changed the styling of the name. They changed mm -hmm. their, uh, they changed to the Delta. Now, that was horrible. Fine, thank God they changed back. <laughs> right. I this this is what I think they realized in the end is that, um, and it's two years ago. I mean, maybe just over two years ago now when they yeah. they they came back to the the Reebok Mototextura lettering with the dropped R, and yeah. of course they came back to the Vector, and and now they've pushed everything else and said no no no. And, you know, it's, it's why did you want to change it in the first place? You know, it, did you think you could change that and change the company? Maybe. Maybe mm -hmm. not. by changing uh, the view, the whatever, the, the silhouettes of the brand, maybe if they change that, they could change the company and make it go down this area. They knew that Reebok had grown out of fitness, had grown mm -hmm. out of this woman's aerobics. So I think they've tried to pigeonhole Reebok down that area. And when you try and take something and put it in a different area, why? You know, it's not working. So I think that when Adidas had gained what they gained from buying Reebok, at that point they should have probably disposed of Reebok instead mm -hmm. of trying to make it into something else. Uh, so we come now to what, what are Reebok going to do now? Well, Reebok have a tremendous legacy. Yes. It's a tremendous legacy. And, it, and it's how do you... How do you really make that legacy work? How do you come in and massage that? Uh, now, people, uh, I would say people over 40, maybe 45 years of age, have all worn a pair of Reebok. Mm -hmm. or nearly all worn a pair of Reebok. We know a lot of people did. Yeah. They now, yeah, they now have the money to buy a pair of Reebok again. 
So how do we get to them? And, and I think this is whoever comes in has got to look at and focus and say, let's try to look at these. Okay, most people go for the 16 to 30-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, can, you can say, well, how do we get to those? But look, a lot of our people are here. Let's try and focus on them. How do we, how do we get to them? Plus, mm-hmm. again, it's a decision. We, you know, are, are we going to be a sports brand? Because we did really well in uh, basketball and in tennis. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to go everywhere, let's concentrate. Shaq O'Neal, he's still around. He wanted to buy the company. And, right. the, and there's another couple of guys who would like to be in. And you've got Iverson there, who is still a legend. Yeah, I, I think he's working on the legends and, and going in there and saying to these people, look, we can still produce this. And, you know, you'd, you'd love a pair of our shoes. You'd, you'd love to walk about in, in a pair because we're now street, we're now fashion. So it's taking them and making the fashion feel for it that, oh, yeah, we love Reebok. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. That's, that's really cool. So the last one is really kind of a uh, post-Reebok question. So I know that you said that um, – in the book that you left and you went into property development and property management and you had uh, a hobby of gardening. So can you tell us about what happened after the book or is there going to be a second book that is the follow-up for kind of everything that happened after, or can you bring us up to speed from the end of the book to now? Well, you, you, you never know what may come in the future. <laughs> That's for one thing. As far as I'm concerned right now, it's the book. Yeah, I'd, I'd like the book to grow and become a number one bestseller and possibly help Reebok to sort of regain a bit of that nostalgia, that bit of, uh, oh, yes, Reebok can become a number one again. We get, get the book up there. Why not? You know, it's easy to buy a book than it is to buy a shoe. Yeah. Yeah. Something like $15 and get, uh, get the Reebok book and read all about it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's, it's a, bit like, um, a bit like the Eagles and Hotel California. With Reebok, you know, I could check out, but I could never leave. <laughs> I love it. And, and that's been, been the history is that, uh, okay, I went, I played with a few things, but really it was, Joe, what did we do then? What happened here? Yeah. And because Reebok grew so rapidly, the internal revenue were always interested in how did it grow? Why, <laughs> why is that brand? And, you know, the Reebok brand is still owned in the UK. It's a UK company. Okay, I did just own the company, but the brand is owned by the company in the UK. And yeah. the internal revenue, we're always interested in why, why is that brand still there when, you know, we're just, so I, I kept going backwards and forwards and different things on different reasons. And, and, and as the company grew, I became more uh, sort of involved with uh, going, going to the, uh, the pro-celebrity deals. So they were all out there. So it was always in always been sort of brought in at various times. Everything else has been sitting back and enjoying it. Plus, we're in France now because without COVID, we would be in our car and I'd be meeting up with Umberto Colombo or Richard Litzel or... Mm-hmm. Uh, he would still be, still be doing that. I'd still be doing that. Yeah. Okay. These guys, they, they, they grew up with me, with Reba. Right. They, they were my distribution. Yeah. I mean, and it's nice. I, I think we've, we've actually got a, almost a date fixed now for, for driving down to, uh, uh, to Italy. Oh, great. Uh, to, to my place. just hired at Milan for racing. 
and, and going up uh, Sacramonte, which is a very nice little mountain outside of Varese, yep. where you can sit, nice warm, you can have a nice bottle of wine, and you can overlook the, uh, the lakes and just enjoy. I love it. Well, I, uh, I would love if you would hang around for just a minute. I'm going to sign off for the interview and thank you so much. Um, what is the best way for people to get a hold of the book or to find out more about you? Are there any resources that are good? Um, what, what's the best way for people who would be interested in learning more to, to learn more other than obviously go buy the book? Yeah, well, what could I learn more? <clears throat> I think buying the book is important, and if they want to buy the book, it should be on Amazon. You say there's some problems, maybe. Uh, I don't know. We'll check with our... Uh, Only with the audio. I got the Kindle. I ended up getting the Kindle, no problem. We ended up getting Kindle, yeah. But uh, the, the book should be there. It was a bit delayed because uh, the publisher that we have, it, although it's Simon & Schuster, he, it's, it's a London office. Yeah. So, the London office of doing that. But it, it should be available. Uh, on that, and uh, and and I think if uh, if anybody wants to sort of set up the business, just read the book. I think I think maybe maybe you you'll see my part. And you know, this is not to tell you how to run your business. This just tells you how we did it, and yes. maybe some little bits in there that can you can use today. But I, I found there to be tremendous lessons. I really did. And if we had another hour, I would love to go into that. We don't, but uh, <laughs> you, so that's you know, read the book because you will be missing out if you don't. Okay, uh, but today, technology, yep. whatever and wherever you are, whatever product, it's technology. Really get into the technology and make sure that you use it the most because this now gives you the opportunity to, to really bring your product out to the nation or wherever you are, certainly. And California, good place to be. And USA, good place to be. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really appreciate having you here. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Roland. Brilliant. You've been listening to Business Lunch with Roland Frazier. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by subscribing and leaving a review. And for more information, go to businesslunchpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. What if three days could change the course of your business in 2023? Get Scalable Live is where you'll gain great clarity on the next steps that will help you create the business, life, and wealth you deserve. Connect with business owners and entrepreneurs just like you, hungry for advice, proven strategies, and necessary connections to grow a business. Literally, million-dollar conversations are happening in the hallways, in the bathrooms, across tables. Get Scalable Live at Fairmont Austin, November 2nd through 4th. Tickets are on sale now at GetScalableLive.com.